This episode is sponsored by Marquette Associates. Marquette is an independent investment consulting firm that was founded in 1986 and has served the same mission ever since, to be a trusted partner to their clients and provide meaningful and thoughtful investment guidance. They've worked with dozens of public organizations in Illinois, and as of December 31st, 2020, that includes 20 firefighter funds across the state, as well as a new consolidated firefighters pension investment fund. Marquette is headquartered in Chicago, and we're grateful for their support of the podcast. You can learn more about Marquette on their website at marquetteassociates.com. This is not an endorsement of Marquette's services. like a chipmunk was going across there. It was like all of a sudden one half was gone. And there was a lot left over here. And I'm like looking, I'm looking, he's looking at the pizza. I said, Ron, you can have one. <laughs> we finished that fast. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we hit record on the podcast early because we're going to introduce our guest for a moment. But in typical fashion, he was relaying a story of my former union president and <laughs> statewide emeritus treasurer, Ron Vineyard from Berwood Local 506, and his, what would you say, his just remarkable capacity for eating pizza. Is that, well, is that would you say that that's fair? Well, his nickname was Pete Ron Pizza. <laughs> Matter of fact, we went to a, we went to a seminar, and we, you know how they put those name tags in front of you? Yes. Well, I got his when he was in a washroom and put Ron Pizza yes. on there. And, yes. I, and he sat there for the whole deal. Didn't know it was there until we got done. When I got on the job, <laughs> he was my first chief, and his pizza-eating abilities yeah. were legendary even yeah. then. How so. many times did he send you out in the middle of the night to get a pizza? It's No doubt about it. You know what he would say? It's that legendary. we have to get this going. You know what he would say? Hey, kid, hey, kid, do you, do you want a pizza? And you would roll over and be like, you know, no, I don't want. I don't want well, we do. Get up and go to Betty's and go get it. So, and, and I've heard that story at least ten times from different guys. So you need to just make it up. <laughs> anyway, welcome to yet another. I just that was comedy goal that I had to start <laughs> recording it. So, welcome to another episode of the AFFI podcast. I always rely on my partner, Luke slash Timothy, to tell you what episode we're on, so that Chuck doesn't get mad at us. I always say that after every one. Do you know which one we're on? I, I'm going to check just to make sure. So while he's checking that, just so you know, for timeline purposes, we are post-MDA game. It was a fantastic event, the uh, MDA outing for the Sox-Cubs. It was the only, it was unfortunately the only game that series in which the wretched evil Cubs beat the beloved angelic White Sox. So that's unfortunate, but a good time was had by all, would you say? Yeah, and we were able to raise, I believe, over $20,000 for MDA. So that's great. It's great, yeah, especially with the last year with Phil DeBoot not being able to work out as well on many of the locals uh, due to the pandemic and everything. So it was good to get back at it and see everybody and raise some money for a good cause. Yeah, so it was so great. That was really great. And I think it, obviously again next year we'll be... Uh, we'll be back at it next year again. Uh, it's, a again, a great cause, a, a good event, and we have a lot of people show up for it. Yeah, so. that was really cool. And so now we are here in September. Of, where does the time go? It was just July 4th. It's now September 1st of 2021, and, and here we go. So we have... Uh, a really phenomenal guest and, and all Ron, Ronnie Pizza Berwin stories aside. <laughs> um, this You have to understand where, where Luke and I are, are coming from with this. We just had a, we were talking about 10, 15 minutes prior to recording and just the stories of what it was like back then. 
And I just have to say, as, as, a, as a point of like personal privilege here, a lot of the reasons that I get to go in and, and my partner, Margaret, and, and, and Pierce and Jarka and Susan Mata and, and all the whole crew get to go in and represent uh, firefighters throughout the state and have the tools in the toolbox is because of the efforts of this man we're about to talk to, and also in addition to his his team of individuals, the district VPs and the vice presidents and the ledge reps, et cetera. And our members need to understand that what we're dealing with September of 2021 uh, is a continuation of 40, 50 years of history. So we are super happy to have you here. And uh, just, hey, man, identify yourself for the record so we know who we're talking to. Um, my name is Dave Foreman. Um, I retired from Joliet Fire Department. I was a captain when I retired. Um, I, I was uh, a firefighter in Lockport for two years before I went to Joliet. Started there in 1969 for $475 a month. <laughs> Good old days. Yes. So <laughs> that was the, the So when you were in Lockport, that was the salary, $475 a month. For me. Yeah, and what was I started six months before me? He was getting five fifty. Oh well, there, there you go. <laughs> what and what year did you start in Lockport? Nineteen sixty nine. Sixty nine, yes. and then you went to Joliet in seventy one. Yes. Okay. All right. That is unbelievable. What was the? So I have. To, I just have to ask this because I am the attorney for Local Forty Four. And uh, Margaret, my partner, is the attorney for 2369. And uh, Chris O'Hara, Eric and they're doing a phenomenal job of, of keep. We're in contract negotiations now, which, as you know, is always so much fun. Uh, but what was the starting salary, if you recall, back in 71 for a Joliet uh, local? Actually, it was interesting because we, we, as soon as I got on the fire department, I got involved with the union, but you couldn't join the union for a year. And this is in Lockport. And they were have, try, to, trying to get a raise, and they were being ignored by the district. Because this is pre collect. This is pre nineteen eighty six. This is pre collective bargaining. Yeah, now. this okay. is nineteen seventy, nineteen sixty nine, seventy, and so we brought Danny Delegato down from. He was the vice president at the time from Michigan. Uh, he came down, and his advice was try to organize the community. So we did. We organized. Uh, you know, went out and talked to the priests and business people and, and put some pressure on the, on the district, and they gave us some raises. So after two years, my salary, I think, was 10000 I'm uh -huh. pretty sure it was, because when I went to Joliet, I took a $1,500 cut. So you actually start. took a pay cut going from Lockport to Joliet in 71? Yeah, because I was starting out as a new firefighter. Right. And, and, then, um, and then when I started Joliet, it was only that way for a short time because... After that, for many years, we were getting huge raises. I mean, these guys would go in and negotiate, and they would, they would, uh, you know, there's a lot of inflation. So, you know, you get a 10% raise, 12% raise. Oh, yeah, but what, what was the interest rate on a house back in the early 80s? Like 16%? Uh, so, I'm not certain because I couldn't afford a house then. <laughs> <laughs> so you went, more. So, you started in Joliet at about $8,509,000 a year. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just, I think when we look in terms of our collective bargaining agreements, which for our uh, area are fair and equitable, 
Uh, but when you look at where we're at now compared to where you guys were at with pre-ability to collectively bargain, uh, you can see the power that is in a union for the last 40 years. Yeah, there's no question. If you go to any of these non-collective bargaining states, North Carolina is a perfect example. It's against the law to even have a contract between a public employee and the employer. It's against the law. It's not, you know, it's not permissible. It's against the law. Yeah. So, you know, when we, I was fortunate, uh, Lockport, Joliet was always a big union town, and Lockport was very supportive of the firefighters. Um, but, you know, it came, it, things started getting difficult over the years, and the big thing was you had, you had, we had a working agreement. A lot of people didn't even have that. Um, Aurora was one of the few locals that actually had a contract, a legitimate contract, before the strikes. Right. And, you know, they went on strike for additional issues, specifically recognition, union recognition, and things of that nature. But um, we didn't, you know, we didn't have the ability to negotiate over things that were um, commonly negotiated over now. I mean, residency. Residents who was never you couldn't talk about that. Right. It was actually it was actually a I think it was a permissive subject. It was never mandatory. I think it was permissive. There were things that were permissive, things that weren't. I'm not certain where that fell in. Certainly, more things have become mandatory now over the oh, years. Oh yeah, I mean, you we had you know negotiating over promotions, which was abused terribly throughout the state. Some places, they had nice uh, promotion systems that worked very well, and they, you know, we didn't get a lot of problems. We didn't see a lot of problems, but there were a lot of places that anybody that was involved with the union had no chance to get promoted. In my case, I worked in Joliet. I saw what they did for years. It was a person who got the highest score on a list invariably was going to get skipped, whether it was in the police department or fire department. Um, the rule of three was abused. Um, I don't know how well people are familiar with the Police and Fire Act and the Civil Service Act, uh, the, the um, Fire Protection Districts Act. Well, they're all basically like a civil service law, but they're not the same. The, the, the Civil Service Act used to say uh, these are the per parameters to get promoted. You could take a written test, an oral interview, blah, 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 seniority, you could whatever they use. But when, it, when you establish the list in a civil service provision, could, you, could be, you could pass the first person once right. and the second person twice. Police and Fire Act said you could promote one of the top three. But when number three becomes number promoted, one. number four becomes number three. Right. And then they go down and get number three again. Right. And in fact, in my case, I was number one, and they promoted number two and number three in the same day. And I'd been working for years to try to correct that problem, was told for years you don't waste your breath. They're never going to give you that. And I said, they're never going to give it to us if we give up. And I 
continued to work on that. So did you, so wait, let me, that's kind of fast. You have no idea how many times I discuss the Fire Department Promotional Act pretty much every day. So just, but just so that our, our listeners understand, when did you first become involved with uh, uh, executive board positions with Local 44? When did that first take place for you? Um, I got involved with the union immediately because I went to Joliet. You, you could get involved. You, you still couldn't join the union until your probation was up within a year. But I got involved right away. I mean, started going to union meetings, anything, any kind of activities they had going on, I always got involved with it. I think I ended up being an alternate delegate in a Joliet convention in 1976. Hmm. And then 77, we went on strike. In 78, I ran for vice president and got elected. And uh, so, you know, and I was involved. Kind vice of president of the AFFI, too. So that's yeah, clear for... Oh, yeah. Well, but, but you were first... Did you what positions with local 44 did you hold? Were you well, I first of all, in local 44, I, I was on a negotiating committee for about two to three years, about two years maybe before the strike. And then I got appointed to the executive board because they didn't have an executive board, and the guy that was became the president at that time, he just appointed. He wanted an executive board, so he appointed them. And you were appointed to the executive board. Uh, yeah. And then I basically uh, was involved with that for quite some time. And there was a lot of issues going on, or a lot of issues going on th within the department after the strike. Because everybody went on strike, but after the strike was over, uh, we had a mayor elected who was... A good friend of some of ours. <laughs> and They're some, never a good friend to all of us, just some of us. But yeah. Well, you, you know, we, when, you're, when you have difficult times in a local, no matter what local you're in, your, your local gets strong. It, it, it happens. It, ha it always happens. But it's the North Riverside effect, we call it in our era, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, it, but then when things are not so good, people get complacent, union gets weak, they turn their head on a lot of issues they shouldn't. You know, just things like bidding on positions and bidding where you're gonna uh, where you're gonna work. I mean, you know, who's gonna get promoted? They don't worry about that too much because they, things just seem like they're going smooth. So they don't they let things happen, and they create uh, they they create conditions of employment unintentionally. Right. You know, for instance, like years ago, a big thing maybe still in some departments, pagers. You know, so you don't, you don't have pagers. And then the chief, everybody loves the chief, blah, blah, blah. They get pagers. Now they take the pagers, they accept the pagers, but they don't negotiate any conditions. Oh, you mean what for like calling out for overtime, callbacks, things like that? Yeah, what happens if you don't want to carry the pager anymore? Right. Or what happens if you lose it or break it or whatever? Same thing with a phone. Right. Whose responsibility is that? You should negotiate those things because when it happens, what well, a chief says, you're going to carry it. Right. I say, well, no, I told you I do. I volunteered to do it, but now I'm not volunteering anymore. Well, you did volunteer, and now it's a condition of employment. Right. Because you didn't negotiate over. Right. Because you wait. Well, speaking of negotiating, though, 
you know, it, for us looking back in September of 2021 that understand the history of it, and Luke is a huge proponent of this, but, you know, throughout the 70s and then in the early 80s and certainly when the when the act was signed in, in 86, there was just a series, and you were talking about this a little bit uh, prior to us hitting the record button, which was fascinating, and I'd, I'd ask for you to talk about it some more for our listeners um, you know, there's a series of strikes, right? You know, exactly. Danville, Normal, Joliet, Chicago, obviously. Uh, I, what, what was, it's kind of like a very general question, but it's a fascinating one. It might be unfair, but, you know, throughout the state, we all know, like, everybody, all firemen know each other. Like, in five minutes, Luke and I can find somebody who's like a lieutenant in Seattle and say hi. Like, what was going on in the state at the time in the 70s, 80s, into the act that was causing the strikes. Like what, what were you guys seeing out there so that our listeners understand? Well, if that's, if that's fair to ask. Well, I think it's, it's very fair. I mean, bottom line is when, when during the seventies, what was happening is a lot of the departments were saying it's time for a collective bargaining law. We want a contract. We don't want a handshake. We don't, we and we don't want the, the agreement, getting, just some agreement. Right, yeah. Exactly. So, and, and it, what's amazing is how many strikes took place throughout Illinois before the big strikes that really got attention. Because these are the big strikes that I mentioned, but you're exactly. right. There were a, a rolling series of strikes. Yeah, and throughout. I'm not certain the number, but it was like 14, 15, 16 strikes in smaller communities throughout Illinois. Rockford, I think, was the first big city that had a strike. And it didn't last very long, but they went out because up until 1968, it was against the Constitution of the IAFF to go on strike. And they passed that when, when Howie McLennan got elected. They, that was part of his, his campaign was to allow firefighters to go on strike. You've got to have some relief valve somewhere. Jesus. Exactly. So they, they, he, he got elected on that platform. Well, then in 1970, and I don't recall the exact issue. Um, I, I just looked at it the other day, too. But anyway, Rockford went out, and they were only out for like a day or a day and a half. And then there were a series of other strikes throughout the state. But then uh, I believe it was Springfield. That was, I think Springfield was the first strike that was a big strike that lasted. And in fact, the, the, the guy that was the president, Tom Bastudic, was, was a battalion chief in Springfield, and he stayed in when the firefighters went out. Um, my understanding was that the firefighters agreed to, to let him stay in. Um, at least that's kind of the story I got later on, but he stayed in. Uh, they were out for quite some time, and when you look at all these strikes, a lot of these strikes were cliffhangers. They weren't just like the guy, they wanted a strike and got what they wanted. I mean, a lot of these guys' jobs really were threatened. Oh, man, normal. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's no, you, you guys in Joliet, 76, yes. right? The difference in Joliet from a lot of these strikes, and what's interesting is how these strikes were set up and the strategy they had was that Silver Spanner. Right. Was that every time we went on strike, at least all the bigger locals, that I'm familiar with, they they didn't call it the Silver Spanner Strike, but they provided protection to the citizens. 
And when you look back in history, I mean, I can tell you when that happened, fire, the, the leadership of the international, the leadership of the industrial unions and the, the trade unions were not happy with this. They didn't call it a strike. They said, that's not, when you go on strike, you don't do that. But when you go back years ago to the railroad workers, when they went on strike, guess what they did? They stopped the trains outside of town. Right. But the passenger trains were able to come through. Correct. You know, like things that were absolutely emergency things, they would let them come through. Well, so, but what you're saying though is that the silver spanner was because you guys understood, at least I recall from understanding what you guys did, is that you guys understood that as much as you guys were fighting for fair wages and working conditions, if somebody had a heart attack, you got to help the person. Exactly. The whole point was that all these strikes really are public relations strikes. And what what happened back years ago when they had strikes like this, if people don't remember, don't, aren't aware of it, was when the middle class in the community supports the workers, they win. Right. When they don't, they lose. And exactly what we did was this, the, the community rallied behind the firefighters. Sometimes it took a long time. Like in Aurora, it took a, a, quite a while. Because in Aurora, the city, for the first time, actually scrambled the signals in the, in the, in the announcement of the, of the calls. So you couldn't listen to the, to the scanners and then respond. The only way you could respond is when the vehicle went out, you have people follow them if they, if they needed them. Right. And then when they got there, they'd threaten, either threaten or arrest the firefighters. Because that strategy had worked so well throughout the state. When we go, we put the fire out and we leave, whoever took the vehicle to the fire. And in Joliet, uh, the judge that was the chief judge lived behind, actually now, my son-in-law's parents. And he was familiar with everything that was going on. So when they came in to try and get an injunction, force them back to work, he said, said no, no. Go, go negotiate. And, yeah. you know, that but you guys knew everybody worked. in the community. I mean, the judge lived in the exact same neighborhood as the firefighters that were walking out exactly. and fighting for a good contract. Yeah. And so we, you know, we we always emphasize the fact that we were not striking against the community or the residents. We were taking the power away from the administration and striking against them to be, have a, a to have a contract to be recognized and have protection. So we know what we're entitled to. So we have a grievance procedure, which we didn't have in the past. Yes, because the grievance procedure, and again, interest arbitration is a direct result of this. But but before we get to that, you know, one of the things that you just kind of mentioned in passing that, that a lot of our younger guys don't understand um, is that you had firemen in, in, in Berwyn back in the late 60s, early 70s. We had multiple guys that were arrested, and you had mentioned it. Guy, AFFI firefighters were locked up for striking and walking out and fighting for their benefit. It's like literally put in a holding cell. And oh, absolutely. Uh, normal. That was amazing. The story was, now it's disputed, I think, but the story well, was. Well, for. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> he, he may remember it the same way or not, but, I mean, the idea, the point, the thing that was out there was 
it was a big rally. We'd been down there a number of times. And uh, the, the, when he went before the judge, the judge was ordering them back to work, and they were denying that we're not going to agree or, or tell our people to go back to work. So he's looking at this local. It says it's, the local number is 2442. So the story was he looked at that, and he drew a line through 2442. So 24 guys, 42 days in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so... Whether that's true or not, it's a good story. I got to tell you, I, like just much like fishing, I want it to be true. I yeah. think that's fantastic. So, you know, so the guys, they, they, they put the guys in jail, and they had half, except for the bargaining unit, bargaining unit stayed in jail the whole time. But the firefighters were on work release in a firehouse. So they had, a, they had more people on duty throughout that whole strike than they had when they weren't on strike. So they would go on, uh, wait. This part I didn't know and forget. So they would go on duty and then they come back and get in the lockup. They put them in a firehouse on work release. <laughs> yeah, they, they they came in the paddy wagon, dropped them off, switched yeah. them at shift change. Oh, that is brought fantastic! Them, brought yeah. them back and forth each way. But I mean, it was really difficult. It was a very difficult strike, and I do recall that I talked to the legislative guys. Like I said, I was. Uh, just elected vice president because we, we had a, we had 78, a, correct? Yeah, yeah. We, we went on strike in Joliet in 77. I ran for vice president in 78, and, and, and it was in Decatur. Well, so when we're in Decatur, they set up a rally in Normal, so they had buses that took the whole convention from Decatur up to Normal to do a big rally, and actually Howie McLennan was still... He was the international president at the time, and he came there. And I remember campaigning on the bus when I was coming back. And that's a story, too. <laughs> but at any rate, I mean, the, the firefighters are all in jail, and the people who really saved and got the communi community activated was the wives. The firefighters' wives were fabulous. They were amazing. And the guy who wrote that book, Mike Patika, was one of the, instrumental with uh, organizing the, the uh, students at Illinois State. And and so, I mean, there were a lot of things that went on, but I remember the legislative committee talking about how they had gone to the budget hearings and talked to the, whoever, the chairman of the committee or whatever, because I don't know if it was, I think it was the mayor was a some kind of an employee where, where, where the state controlled the budget from where he worked. Okay. And the story was, which, again, I wasn't a part of it, but I do know the story was that they went to that budget and got his job cut right out of the budget. <laughs> I don't know if Good. that's true that's, that's, or if they fix it. It's union activism, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, 78, so... Would you, because we have kind of like two parallel things. So you run and you become vice president of the Associated in 78. Right. 80 is the big Chicago strike. Right. That, it, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if I, I think this is the case, but that was kind of then the big kind of cataclysmic event that then precipitated the Labor Relations Act and kind of the movement into the modern era. Is that well, kind of? Well, I, I, I think to a great extent, yeah, because 
up until, you know, you got to remember, I think it was back like in 58 or 50-something, they started working towards the collective bargaining law. Yes. Okay? And basically it never went anywhere. And we didn't have really support of other unions. There weren't, you know, all the other unions weren't coming to our aid saying, hey, we're all right, right, you need collective bargaining. Uh, they gave you lip service, but they didn't really give you a lot of help. Right. I mean, some of these places you got a lot of help when you had strikes. But when we went to Springfield, it wasn't always the same story. Well, when Chicago went on strike, the unions, my opinion, they sold out to firefighters under unions. They they came, you know, we they set up this big um, meeting where they, they took Lass and Barry and wouldn't let them come to the meeting. They had Moon in jail. Uh, they had, uh, I can't think of his name, and he was a great guy, he was vice president. Uh, Bill Reddy. Bill Reddy, yeah. Bill Reddy was a really sharp guy, he was a b- battalion chief, he was vice president of local, and he basically got thrown in the, hu- in the fire. He, he, he was basically running the whole negotiation. But they brought a bunch of guys who all supported the strike, they were involved for years trying to organize and prepare for trying to get a contract, and but they knew nothing about a contract. They didn't even know what should be in a contract or didn't understand the language for it. It was just simply like the rest of us, you know. You know what's what you ask the, the normal guy in the firehouse. Ask him what's the difference between being a member of the union and being a member of the bargaining unit. Well, you were know. saying that back in the day. I mean, we're now we're going back 45 years or so, but guys didn't understand that IFF was AFFI and vice versa, right? Yeah, That's including me. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I was just a big part of it, you know? <laughs> I mean, you knew you had locals. Well, you I didn't know well, another local. Hey, at least we're not North Carolina, right? I mean, that was really the... <laughs> yeah, well, I remember when the president of North Carolina firefighters um, went to a fire. He was a pretty outspoken guy, and he went to a fire, and he used uh, he used this, the deck gun on the second floor to knock the fire down. He got fired. Really? He was fired for that. Really? He never got his job back. Right. I was going to say, no grievance process there, right? The point is that the, the, the people that are running the government are not so friendly, not to firefighters, not to, not firefighters. to any public employee. Yeah. There's about I 26 mean, states now where they're not particularly friendly to firefighters. That's, yeah. from, that's from DM Shirts. Well, I said, I said this when 9-11 happened. 9-11 was terrible. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any firefighter anywhere that can't tell you exactly where and what they were doing when they saw that, that, the, that those planes hit that building. That's true. But... After it's over, I mean, we lost all these firefighters. We lost—I forget the number of people. I think it was like five thousand people, maybe or two thousand. I can't remember. But they—they couldn't throw enough money at public services. There was money coming from every direction. I remember that. And there were a lot of things happening where you know bills were introduced. Things were passed. Uh, I was afraid at the time and said that, that we need to be careful. Don't overreach. Because as fast as these people got behind you, 
they'll leave you. And that's exactly what happened a few years later. You know, when the economy starts getting bad, uh, somebody's going to pay a price, and it's not going to be the politician. Right. They're going to do what they got to do. And so the same thing happens when firefighters go out and help elect candidates. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. They go out and work in a campaign, and they get promises from the candidates, or they think they got promises from the candidates. And so the election's over, their candidate wins, rah, rah, rah. And they don't deliver on something they thought they had. Insert Jane Byrne here. You know, she well, promised she promised them a contract. Yeah. I think that's a, I, it's a perfect example, but it's not the example I'm going for. The example I'm talking about is when that happens, what does the leadership of that union or that local do? And invariably, because of ego more than anything else, they go and blow up at whoever this elected official is, tell them, you promised this, and I'm telling we're done with you, we're coming after you next time. Now, what, what did that get them? Right. It made them feel good because they got it out, right? Right. What did it do to their local? Right. What did it do to their, any power they had or any inroads they might have with that elected person? I think one of the most frustrating things, though, to what you're saying is, is that we have the Associated Firefighters has always stated, you know, look, you, you've got to get in front of your elected officials. You have to support the people that support you, et cetera. And I think sometimes it is right. I mean, it's a maddening problem. You do this like every day, right? Like sometimes it is a maddening process because you have to make sure that, you know, regardless of whether or not an elected official may or may not um, follow through on their promises. And many do. But for the ones that don't, you, you can't just take your ball and go home. You gotta kinda you gotta work the next election and the next election and get to somebody who holds themselves to their promises, right? I mean, it's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I mean relationships matter. And yeah. relationships yeah, and you matter. You started a relationship and I get you know, I get where Dave's going. You just don't throw that relationship out. Correct. Yeah, yeah I mean you know, you're 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 not in a position or standing in the shoes of the person that got elected. Right. And you're not the only one that helped them. My advice has always been, bite your tongue, roll with the punches, keep good records. Right. Next time there's going to be another election. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's four years. Roll calls, keep track of issues, pay attention. Now to the next election, then you make a decision. Don't run out and make a decision today. Then you're done. Right. A lot of times that happens and the local leadership has common sense, and they sit back and say, wait, we'll right. wait. A lot of things can happen in four years. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you be patient. Think about what you're doing, you know, and, and maybe things will turn around and you get something really good out of it. Correct. But if you make an enemy, you're not getting anything. Correct. And, and those enemies that you make got other friends that might be your enemy now, too. Well, I want to talk into what you guys have, have what you did, in, in, in not just you again. We've said, you, you've mentioned so many people that the reason why Luke and I are in the position that we're in today on the job is because of the individuals you named and yourself and the district VPs and the ledge reps, et cetera. But so moving on from 
kind of the strike era and kind of into the, you know, the eighties, nineties, et cetera. And your, your term as president, or I would say past the Danny Fortuna mustache era. Do you remember that thing? Remember Danny Fortuna's mustache? That thing's legit. That's the real deal right there. He had a good beard going last year during COVID. He did have a good beard, but I mean, the 1980 mustache is like, somebody should get a tattoo of that on them of Danny Fortuna, right? Yes. <laughs> and the that, 1980 strike. I, I think that guy does listen to our podcast. <laughs> there's somebody he, that has Fortuna tattooed on his back. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing. I'm biting my tongue on that <laughs> right. So moving into this, so you become vice president in uh, 78, and then when do you move into the president spot of the Associated Firefighters? Uh, 1988. Right. And presumably by 88, you know there's a difference between IFF and AFFI now at this point. We're good to I go. have figured that out, yes. <laughs> so 1988, you become president. There was a really, and again, we had the opportunity to talk to you before we hit record, but there there was a really... You're going to have to go back in time a little bit, though. You, yes. You skipped a lot of years. I here. did. We did skip a lot of years. But one of the <laughs> things that I want to make sure that we discussed, though, because I had asked you some particular big deals, was the survivor benefits. Yeah. And I, I really just want you to take a minute and talk about the survivor benefits okay. and what that was like. And just before you begin, just so that everybody understands and what they're listening to, you you aware, everybody out there in Radio Land, when you're listening to this, that when we die uh, and our wife, uh, significant others, I should say, our wife, husband, whatever, uh, lives past us as they invariably do. They step into the shoes of our pensions and they enjoy those benefits and they are taken care of for the rest of their life as they should be. It wasn't always that way. So tell us about the survivor uh, benefits. Yeah, survivor benefit for many, many years, including line of duty deaths, was 40% of the salary attached to the rank at the date of retirement for survivors. So now you want pension, you're off for 15, 20 years, you die, your wife's going to go back to 40% so of what So she would you, revert back to the 40%. Correct. Right. 40%. Now, we were able to raise it, I don't remember when, but it was sometime in the, in the, in the early 90s maybe, where we, we raised it from 40% up to 54%. And I started raising the issue about 100% for the line of duty benefit. You know, if the survivor at least get 100% of the salary attached to the rank at the date of death. And uh, kind of laughed at, <laughs> but I kept talking about it. And, and fortunately, we were able to get that done. Made a huge difference. But then the next issue was which the police got in, I believe, 1976 was the police survivors get 100% of the benefit the firefighters receiving or entitled to receive at the time of death. Right. They would step into the shoes of. Correct. And and what their listeners don't understand is, again, that wasn't always like that because you were talking about earlier, like people were, I mean, you had, there were like widows calling in tears. Like, how are they going to live off it. of this? No, yes. I, they, they, I, I had a lot of them. I shouldn't say a lot. I've had some call me and, you know, complain about how difficult it was. Um, but after that benefit passed, which was the benefit that gave them 100% of whatever they were receiving at the time of death, I did have widows call me actually crying. They were so happy about it. Yeah. Uh, and Huge one lady benefit. stands out was 
a lady that I actually used her husband as an example of someone who had been on pension for quite a long time and he died and she reverted back to that 40% and she was devastated. Yes. And then she got that and called me. She was so happy. She cried. I mean, it was moving. But thousands and thousands of dollars for that. It was a huge benefit. Huge. And and I had the numbers, you know, I had them for years, but the, the number, he, he, he left at a certain benefit and you think about 3% compounded increases over 20 years what difference that make right uh just amazing yeah so that was a huge huge benefit very happy about that and you're right nobody did anything on their own i mean the membership supported us we had a good uh we had a very good legislative committee worked hard on these benefits uh getting things passed in springfield is not easy it's a hell of a lot easier when you got friends we worked both sides of the aisle, always. We had a lot of really good friends on the Republican side and a lot of really good friends on the Democrat side. It's not like that anymore, I don't think. I Dave, know it just wasn't. To, well, just to put into perspective like how hard you had to work at this and how long, you were, you were telling us earlier, Jerry and I are about the same age. You started <laughs> you working. You just look younger than me. <laughs> we started, you started working on this not long after you got elected, right? In you 78. Know, 78 well, to 80, you know, in that actually, range, that one, started bringing it up as well, an issue. I, no, I did not bring it up. Our local okay. brought this up. It actually did. came from a guy that was on a job, a real good friend of mine, Billy Tatro. Was, he was uh, uh, new on the fire department at the time, fairly new. And his father was, a, I think, a lieutenant on a police department. And he, Billy, knew about that benefit. And he wrote the resolution, sent it in through the local. And I went to the meeting, and I, the first time I got the chair meeting in 1980. So you're talking about you went to the state convention? Yeah. Okay. And well, I went to the state convention. I was the vice president. I chaired the, the, the pension commission committee. <laughs> and when, the, when that resolution came up. Needless guy, to say, it didn't pass. The guy stood up and said, them widows, like, screw them widows. They don't deserve it. And... It would got it got shot down like immediately. It was I was shocked, and then years later, when it came up again, I made it very clear before the convention started. I said, "I'm telling you right now, we're bringing this in here. Anybody that's going to stand up and say something, I'm inviting. I'm inviting all the wives to come in and sit on the committee." Nobody did. We didn't have to because it went through. But then passing it was a lot harder then than it would have been in '80 because yeah, the shot sure. just got it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but just look at that. Just even, just so the listeners understand, when we take a resolution or any topic you want to try to legislate, oh yeah, you got to get it through the membership, and then you got to get it through that legislator. And sometimes they take forever. And even before you were talking about collective bargaining, oh, you know, they Jesus. they introduced that in the late fifties, didn't pass till eighty five, and got signed. You know, went in effect yeah, in eighty six. So yeah. just the time frame. What year, what year did the survivors benefit pass? Do you remember? I, no, I don't. I, I know that it was like, um, it was towards the end of my career as a president, maybe within four years or something like that, maybe. So right, late, late 90s, early 2000s yeah. right there? I mean, you know, it, it, no, some that's issues are popular. Yeah. Some issues are popular. Some are not. The collective bargaining law, I remember... 
Chuck Perky, Mike Brennan, uh, Glenn Walters, these guys. I mean, I'm telling you, they, they nearly came to blows with each other over that issue a few times. I know that, you know, the stress that they had. I mean, I used to say Springfield got nothing on Great America or Great America got nothing on Springfield because, I mean, this minute you're up, the next minute you're down. You got some piece of legislation you've been working your butt off to get passed for a long time. All of a sudden, somebody out of the clear blue sky does something, and all of a sudden you're running uphill again. And it, and it happens over and over and over again. And I know uh, Glenn Walters, who was never a fan of mine, uh, he put his heart and soul in that bill. And, and there was a time when the, when the public employee collective bargaining law passed. It was getting ready to pass, and they, there was an agreement that the firefighters could pass it with that bill, but captains and above would be out of the bargaining unit. Glenn Walters walked away from the table, which was a wise move. It was a brave move, and... Uh, his legislative committee was furious, and uh, they almost had a, gotten a fight over it. But the truth is, a year later, we were able to get the bill passed without that provision, and there's a lot of officers in there. I mean, you can imagine it, they create a, a, a rank structure. Who makes that? The police and fire board and the council. So how many lieutenants do you think there would have ever been made after that? Right. They would have right. had captains, they would have had battalion chiefs or whatever else, and then the rest would be all blue shirts. Right. And, the, you know, he walked away, which you have to give him respect for doing that. I mean, he well, worked it hard on it. It's so difficult to walk away because it's dangling right in front of you. You know what I and mean? And you've been working, they've been working on it for 30 years. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge bill. Yeah. But he knew the, the, the effect it would have had, and he stood up and did what needed to be done. And, and as a result of that, we were able to pass a law that we have today. Well, you got to figure, he, he waited 30 years. What's another year? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hey, believe me, well, we try to pass a promotion bill. Well, the, the, so the Promotions Act, you know, I, I deal with the, with the Fire Department Promotional Act every day with all my locals, get questions about it all the time. And, I, and, and you know, I've had discussions with, with locals in the past. It is the fairest, most equitable, transparent way to ensure that people are, are promoted. And what went on pre-promotional act, I agree with you. I can't remember if we had just started out talking or if it was before we hit the record button, but it was bananas prior to the Fire Department <laughs> Promotional Act. It was just absolute bananas as far as who got promoted and who didn't. Well, correct? first of all, the, the oral interviews were always given by the police and fire board or the fire protection district. They were the ones that gave the interviews. Now, one of the early things that we did was we put provision a provision in that the oral interviews, uh, they can have observers. So you can have observers when they give the test and when you, you give the oral interviews. And then we made an agreement that any provision, like for instance the the um, evaluations, uh, where people got zeros on their evaluations when the union people did, uh, when they when they were up for promotion, when they uh, were going to give an oral or a uh, an evaluation, they were subject to a grievance procedure. 
Correct. Or, or now, you, now you're a chief and you're going to give somebody a zero, then you want to sit before an arbitrator and explain that? Correct. You know? So those are some of the issues. But so this thing that happened was I sat in on, on an oral interview with the police and fire board. We had one question everybody answered wrong. Not one person got it right in the morning. At noon, I suggested that the police and fire board and me go to lunch together. One member said, I have some things I have to do. I can't go to lunch with you. So he goes, picks up all his papers, questions, everything. Out the door he goes. He come back right after lunch, sit down, a couple people come in, this guy comes in, gave a perfect answer to that question. <laughs> what do you think the odds are of that, right? Yeah. yeah. The wrong question, too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He gave a perfect answer to the wrong, an wrong question. I swear to God. I mean, so that's the kind of thing that this is designed to stop. I mean, people getting zeros, people getting passed over for no apparent reason other than political reasons or favoritism or revenge or whatever it was. Those are the things we try to prevent. See, because people see, not, and not in a bad way, I'm not, not going to, but, you know, sometimes I'll have some frustration on the part of locals and employers saying, oh, man, like, now we got to push back the date, uh, you know, because there, there's notice requirements. You have to, mm -hmm. here are the books and, you know, here's your timeline and, you know, here's the, here's how you have to post. But what people don't understand where I'm so happy that you're talking about it is that in this era, in the September 2021 era, sometimes we can look at some of those requirements as, you know, burdensome, onerous, like, okay, you know, and it takes so long to put a test together and we got to get the testing company. But the alternative is, is to go back to what you were talking about and how horrible the abuses were. And I can remember the story. I mean, I got on in 1999. I can remember guys in the firehouse, you know, how this guy got promoted and how this guy got mm -hmm. promoted, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think it's good to hear that history because people don't realize that it's there for a reason. You know, it didn't just magically appear. No, here's some of this. I remember studying for a promotion. One of my first times I studied, you know, sitting there reading a book and a guy walks up, throws you a phone book. He said, there, you better study that book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of stuff you ran into. And, and it was true. <laughs> I mean, it, the times were different. It was very difficult. And, you know, the, the promotion has changed many people's lives because I saw people, their careers destroyed. Yes. Because when they study and they work and they do everything they're supposed to do to get promoted, and then because they said the wrong thing to the wrong person or whatever, somebody's got a relative, they get passed over for no apparent reason. Yes. There's not that many promotions in many of these jobs. Uh, it destroys their career. Yeah, you got a 25. I mean, Joliet's a big local. I mean, my site, you know, DeKalb, they're you know, big, bigger size. You get a local that has 20 guys. Exactly. You might get, you know, one lieutenant spot every three years or something, and you want to make sure that it's a fair process, yeah. right? And I, and I said all along, I mean, one of the big things was the fire chiefs were adamantly opposed to it for years. Of course. But there were two chiefs that were real involved with the Fire Chiefs Association, and those two chiefs, had been bouncing around from department to department. 
and all of a sudden it comes time to retire, they didn't have a pension because they were skipping around. They wanted to get credi the credible service. Or the, the portability between the funds. Yeah. And, I, and they came and saw me. I go, my members never wanted that. They've always been opposed to that. There's never been any, any time that ever came up, they, got, they shot it down. So I said, there ain't much chance of that getting done. So you might have a little better chance once this promotion thing passes. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that's why we have portability, <laughs> reciprocity between the pension funds under Article 4 today. That's, that's exactly the truth. I think that is awesome, and I think that is fascinating, and that makes me, that puts a big smile on my face. <laughs> I would horse trade the ability to the reciprocity between well, funds. It helped, it helped a lot of our guys, too. Of course, it, yeah, but there's what, people what the, that take advantage of it all day long. Yeah. yeah, but the fear, their fear was, which was not ever really involved with this, was they were afraid that this department guy's over here, and we got a captain or a lieutenant position over here, and they were going to be able to get a lateral transfer, which right. was never the case. But when we did that, it helped a lot of people, and it certainly helped get that promotion bill passed because these guys actively worked to help awesome. us. Get a pass. That is awesome. So, <laughs> so it's Chiefs' poor career decisions in typical AFFI fashion, we turned into a victory for both of us. So that's good. I, yeah, I, I good. used to go to, to the uh, Illinois Fire Services. Have not, not the Illinois Fire Service, but the Illinois uh, University of Illinois Fire Service Institute. They have an annual fire college. Well, when Glenn, when Glenn was the president, he always used to send me there. He really wanted to go over. Because you go up there and you sit in front and they have the open ceremony. Yeah, you yeah. got to go up and make a little speech, you know. So I always went, I talked to him, and I, and I always tell the chiefs, I said, look, because I, you know, inside and outside, you talk to them, and I'd say, you know, chiefs are, are the best organizers I have. Right. Chiefs start screwing around with them guys, guess who they call? Me. Right. So we go organize them, you know, so... Here's a story I don't really have anything to do with that, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> there was a guy named Paul Becker. He was the, he was the, uh, the chief in Lyle Woodridge. So <laughs> I'm always kind of cocky joking around. So I'm sitting up there, and Paul, he was older. He was a chief, been a chief there for quite a while. And he was talking about how he was there, I think, for the first annual fire college, or one of the first ones, you know. And how many or how, how many years he'd been? I think it says how many years he'd been going there. So I'm sitting there. I go like, I was next up. I said, Yeah, you know when he started coming here, I was in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot he was coming back up there. <laughs> next day he came up. He said, uh, Yeah, he was in third grade, but he was 15. <laughs> Oh, I told that at my retirement party. <laughs> you're smart enough to become a fireman. So, what other pieces of legislature, like Luke, what from that era? What do we? What else do our listeners need to know? Well, I, there's a lot of health and safety issues. I mean, the the the, the issues with um, uh, you know presumptive issues, yeah, yeah. presumptive cancers, presumptive. Uh, heart and lung disease and things of that nature. Those were big issues that were worked on for a long time. And I worked with Chicago firefighters, uh, who was a guy named Carl Le Carl Liss. Carl Liss, really a good guy. He was the head of the, the fight, health and safety committee after the Chicago strike. And they were trying, they were working on presumptive cancer. And uh, Mike uh, Cohen, uh, I think, was their lobbyist at the time. And... Uh, 
they were doing research on, on uh, cause of death. They were trying to find out how many people died from cancer. Well, what they found out, going and getting all these death certificates from all these guys, been on a job all these years, and then leave, and they're, you know, a year or two later, they're gone, dead. And so they're trying to find us. Well, what we found out is, depending on the doctors, the coroners, whoever, if they do an autopsy, whatever, they very rarely ever mention cancer as a cause of death. Really? Matter of fact, we're having the same problem right now with COVID. How many people are dying from COVID? Right. You die from heart disease, or not heart disease, you die from heart attacks. Almost everybody ends up dying from heart attack. Your, your organs fail, right, and then you die. And if whoever's doing the report doesn't put that on there, there's no record of it. Did occupational disease pass? No, when did I can't? No, I don't have the statute in front yeah, of me. Yeah, it passed when I was there. For occupational but I don't, disease I don't disability. remember if it passed. You know, I know that there were additions to it, but the, the original bill, I don't recall if, I, I, don't, I don't recall working on that. Okay. I, you know, I worked on it with the Chicago guys mm -hmm. because there were a lot of, they used to do a lot of seminars and programs for their members and, and other unions and things. And, and uh, that bill, I know when they, Pass it. We made some a lot of amendments to it, bloodborne pathogens and things of that nature. We worked on, but I mean I couldn't begin to tell you all the bills that we worked on, or, or even worse than that, how many we killed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, that's it, a, even that's if a you sign. never pass a bill, right? Having somebody down there that's going to kill bills that are going to harm you is even more important. Well, well, we've said it on this podcast. We said that, and it is true. I'll, I'll say it. It's worth saying again. For for everybody out there that who, who's listening, we've said this before, that every morning you wake up, there's somebody in the state of Illinois that wants to take every benefit away from you that you have. There's no doubt about it. So, Well, yeah, absolutely. The extremists, they're, they're dead. I mean, think about your pension. Right. I mean, if it wasn't for that, for, for the constitutional provision... It says that it's a benefit, retirement benefits are contractual. Right. Okay. But throughout the whole time I was there, one of the things I was kind of disappointed in was our attorneys, and we asked about that. Our attorneys always interpreted retirement benefits as pension benefits. And I thought that. And then there was a lawsuit. And the lawsuit, the, the attorney said, or the uh, judge said, it's, it applies to benefits. Right, so health care benefits, etc. yeah. Right. It's Canerva. So now, I mean, I, I, I would think that they made an agreement where I'm from. The guys, in, some of the guys in Joliet uh, put, went, put this forward. I thought they were wrong. I thought they were going to cause harm. Turned out they didn't. It was it was a good it was a good uh, lawsuit. I kind of thought somebody was going to pick that up throughout the state as a uh, what do you call a class action mm. because Ron McDonald, who was vice president from 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 Collinsville, when he retired, he was paying a hundred dollars for his health insurance benefit as a retiree. 
within a couple of years, they raised that up to almost $800 or $1,000. Depending on the language that's in the contract, correct? Yeah. Well, but bottom line is the contract, yeah, whatever, but whatever is in the contract at the date of retirement. Should have, in your mind, should have been considered a, a contractual benefit. That's exactly what the lawsuit was about. And, that's right. a fa- and, that, and they agreed with it. And then it got kicked back to the circuit court, and they didn't, they didn't rule on it for a long, long time. Then they turned it into a class action, and then it was a settlement. Right. And I'm telling you right now, I'll bet you anything that the Municipal League was really involved with that one. Because had that go- become, if that, law, if that lawsuit would have gone through up to the Supreme Court and been ruled in their favor, you know what would have happened all over the state? There's a lot of things that happen. Probably shouldn't even say it. <laughs> well, then Article 13, Section 5. And, and again, just to, to your point about playing defense is that, you know, there were a series, what, in 2014, 15, there were a series of, I think it was it Senate Bill 1 comes to mind, of, of diminishing these benefits. Yeah. And there was a series of lawsuits that uh, the Supreme Court squarely uh, decided for the plaintiffs that this, these were contractual benefits. I mean, certainly that, you know, yeah, the traditional Ashley, pension. Ashley and, that, that, in that particular case, that's why I wondered about the firefighters. Why never happened? Yeah. You know, but I, you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with everything that's going on or what their advice was. You right. Know, it's, you can't second guess what somebody else is doing when you're not there. Right. You know, you, you think you have questions about it, but you, you just don't know. I mean, these guys are working their butt off down there. I mean, I can't imagine what what Chuck has been going through since he took over. I well, mean, Chuck, <laughs> we had <laughs> Chuck was our first uh, podcast. I think Chuck was president for three months, and then COVID happened. Right? Is that <laughs> that's accurate? And it's and it's still going. You know, it's, yeah. I, I think everybody gets their challenges and their different uh, well, yeah, things. You know, we I mean, we had Pat on here uh, a yeah. couple a few weeks ago, and. You know, he dealt with Bruce Rauner and some of this pension stuff. Oh, my God. Know. That was the era. So, I mean, that was yeah, the era of the, yeah. you know, Senate exactly. Bill 1. Yeah. And so, I, you know, it ebbs and flows, I think, for all the leadership to, you know, deal yeah, with we, these challenges. And the, Yeah, and the we all guys, have our own. Well, I sent guys. that thing not too long ago. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's just... Yeah, Chuck they, at this point is just wearing like a World War II combat helmet when he walks around and is always <laughs> one minute away from getting ambushed. He's always looking around the next corner to see what he has to deal with next. Well, and there's, you know, right now, though, I mean, there is a lot going on. Like, you know, you have the uh, IFPIF, the fire. The consolidated yeah, fund. fund. Yeah, yeah the statewide consolidated that. fund. That's still got to get finished up. You know, you have all the COVID issues and then you still have everything else going on on a day-to-day basis. And right. You're just regular collective bargaining issues. I mean, the last 18 months has been cataclysmic, I would say. Just mm-hmm. just yeah. an, an incredible... I, I said, so, you know what? I, I, I can't imagine. When I came in, I mean, you got to remember when I took over as president, the first issue I ran into is we were broke. I mean, we really were broke. <laughs> That's a problem to have. Vineyard, Vineyard <laughs> sent me a, a message, said, Dave... I spent too much on pizza. We're broke. That's what he said. What he said was $5,000 we have in our accounts. For the entire statewide association? Yes. Oh, my $5, God. $5,000. We have to do something. So I, so I sent out this thing saying no duty relief until, you know, we figure out what we're going to do. It has to be approved. Right. I came back to the next board meeting. The board members were all pissed off about it and voted. Then I, they wanted me to write a letter apologizing for putting that out. 
I, I withdrew my thing because they voted, but I didn't apologize because that was bullshit. It was right. a political stunt. Yes. What it was, because we had a lot of that back then, too. A lot of political stunts that went on. Fortunately, Chuck and and and, and uh, Pat have never had to deal with those things. It's been more, it's that been a tough. much more cohesive team, I think, yeah. in this but era. You've, yeah, but you've also got so many more locals and so many people you have to represent. You know, I came, I had 90 locals. I know. I was just going to, so I was going to ask that. So we, so we have what, 225, 224? Yeah, yeah we're in 228 communities because there's some like shared locals. Some shared locals. Yeah, so it's 225 locals and 228 So you had 90. The so year two I and a half left, times. 90. Yeah. Yeah. And I organized quite a few of those and I will organize a lot after that. One of the concerns I had was that Sometimes go guys go out and they think they're like an aluminum siding salesman. They tell them shit <laughs> to get them to organize. Right, right. And then guess what happens? After they get in, they expect that to happen. I can't help them. Right. So I said, you, I ain't doing that anymore. If you you go out and say, you got to make sure that we, what you tell them is the truth. Correct. And I and I had to go through that with with locals and and uh, it only happened a couple of times. But I took over most of the organizing after that and then. Uh, then other people start doing it. They knew what they're supposed to do, so we didn't have more problems with it. But, I mean, I think when I left, we were right around 200. Well, I just uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, on today's date at about 8.30 this morning, finished up our, uh, I think, our newest uh, Schiller Park uh Great. Yeah, they're they're right there. We got a, we got a couple more out there. I think it's local fifty two thirty at this point. Yeah, local fifty two thirty, and these guys got a hell of a contract today. So that's how far we've come. And yeah, might be a, a couple others uh, after that. But. Yeah, we we have about thirty nine places we're aware of that could still organize, and we get phone calls, but we're getting more of them now from. EMS only locals, you know, that's, I've been doing just, a lot of EMS only local. Yeah, you go down, you go down, sure. you go down Southern part of the state where they're not fire wide and, you know, firebase, they're running countywide or whatever that those are EMS they services. Private? Are they private? No, they're public. They public? They're, yeah. They're public employees. So yeah, we, we, we field the phone calls from them and, you know, there's some more places that we can gain, you know, but I mean, overall we're, we're pretty well covered across yeah. the state now. Yeah, well, so this, there's a lot of territory people have to, Covered to, to do the Our job. work is still not done. Oh yeah, oh, I think no, uh, no. I think Chris Coates and Steve Perry collectively put four billion miles a year on their vehicles. Yeah, those so. cars wear off fast. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I know that. So this has been fa- this has been uh, fantastic for our members to hear because you know I think you know a lot of times and we've talked about this on other episodes we've talked about this at the conventions and seminars and stuff it's not their fault it's not but sometimes a lot of our younger members you know don't understand and what we don't want to do is to have the a collective bargaining agreement or the concept of a union be nothing more than a conduit for wages and benefits. You have to understand where we came from and how that document came to be. And I think it's really fantastic that you would spend some time and explain the history so that guys and locals that we just mentioned today realize, you know, holy shit, as good as normal's contract is, uh, it came with a price and how we build upon it. And years from now, there'll be attorneys and firefighters 20, 30 years from now, building off of what we do. So um, that was fantastic. What did we miss with uh, Dave Luke? Anything? 
Dave, how about so the, the end of your career? I mean, you got to you know get involved in some other aspects. Uh, you know, after you were done being president, well, with the fire marshal, there's a state fire marshal. So you did go to the state fire marshal. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I mean, yeah. so that's. I mean, it just speaks for your leadership and your involvement. How long were you at state fire marshal? About four years. It was basically, you know, a lot of those jobs when you're, first of all, if you, I don't care if you're a fire marshal or a fire chief or whatever, you know, people like you, they don't like you. You know, a lot of guys, everybody loved them their whole career. They don't become a chief and everybody hates them two weeks right. or whatever. They got bit by the management bug. Yeah, well, that and plus people understand you still have to run the fire department. You know, it's you know, discipline has to be done. Yeah. And you have to enforce the rules, and you have to make sure people get trained. And if they don't do that, then you have to make sure it gets done. So there, there's a lot of issues. Me, for the fire marshal thing, that, that was like, you know, it was very like a stroke of luck I got that position. I, you know, I told them that, well, I, I didn't get this because I knew a lot about fire marshals. I walked in the first day. It was like a deer in headlights. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about the fire marshal's office. They, they, you know, personal standards and education, boilers, uh, the petroleum and chemical division, the, the uh, fire fire prevention, the plan reviews. I mean, there's so many different divisions within there. I mean, I was never inspector number one. Right. You were really I, good at putting out structure fires, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I was pretty good at recognizing people that were good and weren't, and and they could trust me. Right. You know, when you get in those positions, That's smart, they the want people to, they want people that are going to, you know, try and protect their ass, get them, don't get them in trouble. And then I've seen fire marshals that got in there, they got in trouble through no fault of their own. And one of the big issues has been for a long time, high-rise sprinklers. That's been in the code forever okay but there's a provision in there that local codes can supersede or something so chicago's always argued that they were you know they had their local provisions that right. were as good or better which right. is nonsense they know it's nonsense but it's expensive and people that own those high-rise buildings they have a lot of money so they have a lot of influence when they had the big fire up there, that Peter thing, <laughs> he got put in for, through politics. Uh, basically the same way I did. I mean, anybody gets in there, they get it for a political reason, they got it. And uh, they brought him up. <laughs> they brought him up there to testify in a committee hearing with the Senate in Chicago. And he, he had no chance. First of all, he, he, he was, I think he was from Maywood. He was a nice guy. I mean, I met the guy. He's a nice guy. But he had left, something happened with some promotion over there, and he quit. But he was real involved with the uh, Hispanic organization in the elections, and there was a big push to make him the fire marshal. So they appointed him as a, a temporary. He was a temporary fire marshal. And this happened. Well, first of all, he was never going to get the, 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 the votes, uh, and big people went after him immediately. I mean, they, they wouldn't even call for a vote. It was that serious. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, he, he, he was caught in a trick bag. And uh, truthfully, if it would have happened when I was there, the same thing would happen. So now we get 
we get um, uh, my buddy, who was a fire marshal, before Vina. You know what I'm talking about. After you? Or after yeah, you? yeah. Um, he was a Chicago paramedic. And, and I know the guy for 30 years. I just can't remember his it's name. It's been a long day. Yeah, but he, he is, gets to be a fire marshal. <laughs> and uh, he starts pushing because the sprinkler fitters and the fire services have been pushing for residential sprinklers, and they've been pushing for this high-rise enforcement for a long time. So he decides he's going to support them, and he did. I mean, he went way out of his way, and he, he had gone to the leadership in the House and Senate and told them what he was doing there, basically, go ahead. Well, when it got to the point where it looked like it might go, they all, basically said, "All of a sudden, stop. Either you stop, or we will get somebody who will stop." I remember him telling me that. God, it's driving me crazy. I can't remember his name. I knew him forever. He was one. He was on the. He was on the. He was on the strike committee. I think he was. I don't know if he was on the board during the strike or right after the strike. Larry, Larry Macitis, yeah. So he, I I supported it. But I also knew that they ain't never going to let that happen. Right. You know, big. this is what happens time and time again. It's like in politics, all of them. Some big disaster strikes. Now there's all this attention put on it. And all these people, we've got to do something about it, we've got to do something about it, have hearings here, and they have this hearing for this, a hearing for that. It goes on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, it kind of wears down. So you mean like what happens when a condo collapses in Miami? Exactly. Right. <laughs> Watch what happens, really. Watch what they do. Well, but you had said something, though, to go into it. You had said something about um, a couple minutes before we got into the, the fire marshal, which was um, talking about the fire chiefs. In, in you know, I don't know of any, in my own opinion, and Luke, tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't know anybody from... The associated firefighters, at least on you know on the, the the elected members of the board, certainly myself as an attorney. I mean, I don't inherently hate fire chiefs, right? I mean, I, I well, and, and you would say, I mean, I've met some really interesting fire chiefs that I have absolutely no idea how this person got themselves promoted. But overall, you have to understand that they do have a department to run, and people do uh, talk themselves into discipline every once in a while, and they do have budget constraints and things to deal with. And I, you know, I, I just not that I feel sorry, but I, I but you, you have to put yourself in other people's shoes every once in a while too to see what's fair and equitable. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, I think it's fair. But you also go back, you know, from the time that I got involved until today. And look at the standard of professionalism and most chiefs have today. Yes. And most communities, councils, city managers, mayors, they don't want a bunch of mopes in there. They, they want people that are going to do the job and make them look good. It's a vast improvement it, exactly. in terms of it's qualifications, like, education. It, there's no question that there's still who you know type stuff that goes on. But the majority of these guys are very professional. And are they going to have disputes with the leadership of the locals? Absolutely. I mean, in all of my years for doing, for, for, and representing uh, uh, locals, both police and fire, 
I got to tell you, I have seen a few instances where Chiefs have gone after somebody. They just didn't like this guy, and they were going after him. But I have to tell you that that's the exception and not the norm. I, I don't. I don't. It's true. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with fire chiefs that like I'm gonna get this guy. I hate this guy. I'm gonna do whatever I can. I just yeah. I mean, mo- most of the time it's our members that uh, talk themselves into it. You know. Well, so yeah. I mean, and it, and the truth is really. The chiefs now really are much better than they used to be. I, I would agree. You with know, that. you got to remember that when collective bargaining wasn't the case, and shortly after collective bargaining was passed, there was a huge change in the attitudes of a lot of chiefs. There's also, with this promotion thing, people are a hell of a lot more prepared when they get promoted than they used to be. Yes. And the chief has to deal with them too. Yes. You know? So, you know, they're now when they look for a new chief, sometimes they'll come up right through the ranks, but very often they're having assessment centers for these guys. I, I, very true. And often now what I've seen, and Luke, I don't know, I think you would agree with me, but a lot of times you will see the number one and number two in the apartments that are were the union guys because yeah, they understand the contract. They were involved in the community. They had the respect of the guys. That's how they became secretary, treasurer, vice president, president. And a lot of times now, they are, they are. I mean, of course, it's not a requirement, but you will see former presidents and vice presidents that uh, become the chief and deputy chief. What are leaders? I mean, guys, you, yeah. most of you guys have been leading the local for a long time. He, most of the time, he's not going to stay there if, he don't, if he's not a leader. Right. You know, there are guys that get these jobs, you know as well as I do, there's guys that get these jobs as president of local. They want the title. They don't want the work. Right. And, and there's no question about that. And that's what I complain about, for, have complained about for years, is one of the reasons that the new people don't get involved is because the leadership doesn't do their job educating them and preparing them. Correct. Now, there's always been... We had this discussion before. There's always been, ever since I started, you know, the new guys this, the new guys that. And then all of a sudden, they're not the new guys anymore, and they're talking about the new guys now. So there was some guy that got on in World War II that in 1969 was complaining about you. That's what you're trying to say, right? (laughs) Of course. They call me me a lot of names. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, and yeah, we just talked about this the other day, and... I firmly believe just what you're saying. Most, I mean, you can look at the AFI executive board right now. A majority of that board is company officers or higher. Absolutely. And generally, and that's why I like to break up. I mean, getting yeah, the fire marshal. John Sargent, you know, man, that kid. Yeah, I mean, there's, awesome. it, I think there's definitely things to say about the leadership aspect, and you're involved in a lot of the department's operations and organization. Where I like where Dave's going to, and, and, and we're proud to be doing this here in the next couple of weeks is our new member conference. Right. And those new members, they need to come on the job. They're no different than when we were new, Dave was new or whatever. But we got to give them the tools to succeed. And, you know, we're hoping to do that on our side. But then it goes back to the locals, too. The locals got to prepare those new members and educate them, bring them through and and do it. We, I mean, we can do a lot for them and support with the resources that the AFFI has. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all of us together. Like we we all make well because it work. and, and it it actually sparks a question that I want to that I want to ask you is that, you know, so in my family they were 
laborers, union, you know, concrete, operating engineers, you know, it, 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 the kids getting on today. So it may not have been the Associated Firefighters of Illinois Union, but you you understood in my family traditional union activities, environment, et cetera. So when I got on in 1999, you know, there was my I had family and police unions, and, and like I said, everything, you know, they, a ton of them, like I said, were operating engineers, and those guys are, that's unionism. So you, I at least understood it in 1999. I, I got it. Now I think when you have kids that are getting on today, no one in their family, you well, know, that's, that's true. No one was a teamster. No one was a member of SCIU. No one. They just didn't. They don't. They have no idea what it even is. Where even before guys could say, "Oh yeah, my uncle was a was a BA with AFSME or something like that," and they understood it, right? Well, that's absolutely true. There's no question. But all unions, in my opinion, pretty much all the unions, not just firefighters, but across the board have failed for a long time in educating their own members about labor history. They give them some. They don't give them enough. We certainly didn't give them anywhere near enough, ever. Um, That's one issue. And the other issue is, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it. I think anybody in the fire service has seen this. You get guys that come on the fire department from the building trades. They're great. Wonderful. They work hard. They know what they're doing. Not afraid of work. They understand chain of command. You work for somebody, you do what they, you know, military guy. Perfect. Wonderful. Now, you get some kid that never went to, went to college or he went to college either, either way, but never really worked in the trades. Never was really in the was military. involved with the union. Never was in the military. And then they come in, they question everything you do. And that's, that's part of that is the officer's fault. And part of that was my fault because I I didn't go, you know, guys come in, they come work for me, say, hey, lieutenant, captain, whatever. And I say, just call me Dave, we're fine, you know, with that. I never should have done that. I should have kept it, lieutenant, captain. You know why? Because it's more of a, an authority figure right. than, yeah, I'm, this, I'm There's Dave. a reason why officers wear white. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of us that were officers – kind of led the way on that. It's kind of like if you look at business today, who wears sport coats and suits anymore? They wear the kind of shirt you're wearing right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. It's different. There's the, the, the line between the employee and the employer or the manager or the, or the, the boss has been grayed Kaput. out. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a whole lot of that. They, they feel more comfortable questioning and things than they did when I came on. You didn't question shit. You start questioning your officer, you're going to be in shit. They, I was scared shitless of Dennis Banakovich. Yeah, well, everybody was scared of Dennis. <laughs> just, just the name scares me. Oh, no, dude. He was, <laughs> he was one of those guys that was like, I don't, until you have 10 years on, don't talk to me. I don't. Give a fuck who you are. It doesn't really yeah, matter. Really and he he meant it too. Yeah. Yep. So I, just one other thing I just want to give Dave a lot of credit for. And obviously I've been fortunate with the stuff I've been involved with AFFI, but having these conversations with him, be able to get the history out of him. Um, Dave's still very involved with the organization. He's yeah. 
uh, part of our Labor History Committee. He's going to help present at our new member conference on our history uh, with uh, Matt Hill from Normal. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate him being around and being part of the organization still. I'm glad because, I'm around, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. And, uh, you know, even like we were talking earlier about Chuck or Pat, you know, yeah. and I know over time you still talk to those guys. There's still that there's still good advice. You had a lot of experiences and you still share them. And, and I, I think that makes a difference. So it's appreciated that, you know, you are a part of it still and enjoy it. And uh, obviously having you here on the podcast, I think is great because more people are going to hear it. This was awesome. And I got to tell you, trading the pension reciprocity for the Fire Department Promotional Act is one of the greatest coups. <laughs> That's like heads I win, tails you lose. That that made my afternoon, that story. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, I, I this has been this was fantastic. This was really yeah, cool. Had fun, fun with it. You it got was any, really an honor. You got any parting wisdom for? And, and really, Don't eat we, the we, yellow we, snow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to we try to get this for just a lot of the regular backstep firefighters are listening to it. They might not even be involved in their union. We boards. have a lot of guys that listen. Uh, obviously, we have the union officers doing their locals and stuff. But you know, the regular members are listening to this, but. Any any little parting things about the union or things that you learned over your career? Well, I learned that um, when when leaders uh, have have uh, projects or they're looking for people to do things, uh, they fail terribly when they think they're going to make an announcement or post something on a bulletin board and think they're going to get help or if they're going to show up, not show up, when they got a project going on and uh, elder members show up and the leader's not there. And if they're not there, they're not a leader. If you're going to be a leader, leaders must lead, period. And if they're not willing to lead, then get out of the way and put somebody in that will. Well said. Perfect. Well said. This, was been, this was fantastic, and uh, thank you so much for coming aboard, and this was a great episode. And, and, oh, I have one, I have one thing that's totally unrelated. Well, it has to do with pensions, but I want something I wanted to put on here. Uh, but the Associated Firefighters of Illinois, once again, talk about reciprocity. Uh, and there's a six month window for the article three to article four transfers. I wanted to make sure that we got that in there. Something that has nothing to do with what we talked about today, but somebody out there listening. So remember, if you were a police officer, Associated Firefighters passed a bill. If anybody was a police officer smart enough to become a fireman from any police department into your fire department, you can transfer up to eight years of credible service. So I wanted to make sure that we got that. But, um, yeah. Other than that. You ought to send it out to all the police departments. They have tons of guys <laughs> trying to get on the fire department. They are now. Yeah. Why bring a gun to work when you can bring a pillow, I always say. But uh, All right. I just I would be remiss if I didn't mention that because there's a six-month window. But uh, we are able to do that off of the efforts of what uh, you did the last 40, 45 years. So thank you very much. I was very lucky to uh, have the opportunity to get in the position that I got into. Um you know, people, I don't even know how many presidents they had now, but I think when I got to be president, I think there was only like five or six, it, it, you know, that had ever been a president. They had uh, the guy from Springfield. Um, my mind doesn't remember everything. Matter of fact, all these things I said on this thing, it's from my recollection. Right. It's, it, it, anything that's wrong, You can neither confirm nor deny the veracity <laughs> of these statements. But, but the truth is that... Uh, you know, th th there's, there was, there was a guy from Springfield that became president, and then uh, the 
Charlie, Charlie Cadell's father, Glenn, he was the longest serving president. Hey, you know what? Wire on him before we start going the other ones. You got to tell the story with him in Peoria. Because this oh, yeah. will this will blow people's minds. It's it's a good, and this is again awesome. just little things, little tidbits. Dave tells stories about, but this is really awesome. So Glenn Glenn Cadell was was the president of this association for twenty years. His son Charlie became a vice president years later. He served on the board with me. When Charlie was a kid, Peoria, local fifty which it was at the time, I believe, was in big trouble. And they were about to fold up. Glenn Kendall mortgaged his house to loan them the money so they could continue to be a local. Get out of here. Uh, Scott. What, g- give me an approximate year. No how much. No, 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 no. Just uh, approximate year. Well, I think if you go in the book and you find out when Peoria got out and when they came back in, I don't, it's, it might have been when they came back in or shortly after that. Uh, that's a, the best I could do because Charlie and Glenn are both dead. The only other person that I could think of that might know anything would have been Glenn Walters, who's also dead now. So he mortgaged his house. Right. He got a mortgage on his house to save that local. I don't have anything else after that, Luke. I think that that is probably the. <laughs> that's a hell of a story. I don't. I don't know where to go to and, from and here. Got, in this and podcast I got that directly from from Charlie, who was on the board, and he wanted, and, and he never said anything about it for a long time, and then shortly before Glenn died, he wanted to know. You know, he was complaining that that his dad should have been made an emeritus. And then we were going to do it. And then he died. And once you die, you're no longer in Maris. Right. It might be a record to been one, you know. But, um, you know, it was just too bad. That's a hell of a story, though. All right. We could sit here longer and probably figure out oh some more. Oh, my God. Sure. Especially if the <laughs> Maybe, maybe we'll have to do falling. another uh, episode down the road a here. Part two. All right. So thanks again, Dave. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you so much for for coming and and sharing everything with us so that our guys have an understanding of where things came from. And we appreciate it. And I think the guys are going to love this one. I certainly did. This was one of my favorites. This was fantastic. It's really cool. So guys and Joel will be making fun of me next time I see him. Oh, that's all right. I'll make fun of them. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm I'm billing Local 44 for this. It's fine. I told told them before. I said, and when you get, as soon as you come in a fire station, one thing you re- need to know is everybody's fair game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we're going to go off the record. Parting wisdom right there. Yeah, that is some parting wisdom. See everybody next time. See you guys uh, next time, and take care, everybody.